There was a viral video going around social media this week that I watched and I just loved and some of you may have seen it. Like I said, I saw a lot of people sharing it and commenting it, commenting on it. And what it was, was there was a, a man who took his family to some kind of reptilian exhibit, I don't know what you call them. And there was a young woman who worked there who was feeding a crocodile and the kids were all watching and the crocodile grabbed her hand and he pulled her in and he had her by the arm and he was doing that torpedo spin thing and she was flipping and you know, she was probably going to die. Uh, that's usually what happens when someone gets their arm stuck in the mouth of a crocodile. And so this man, who I remind you is not an employee, He's not in a, he was not a trained animal uh, security officer or whatever their title is. He was just a man who took his kids there to see the crocodile. He jumps into the cage and he wrestles the crocodile and gets on top of it so this woman could finally get her hand free. And not only was that so courageous, but what happened after that is now the woman's got his hand free, but where's he now? He's in a cage with a crocodile on top of him and he's just got you know, some guy at the outside trying to like, uh, you know, give him oral instructions and he ends up making it out okay. And I just love that video because I love heroes. And why do we love heroes? We love heroes because we love courage. And every time I see things like that, I just pray to the Lord that if I was ever in a situation like that, His Spirit would move me, that I would not be shocked and stand still, but that I would have the kind of courage to move. We are drawn to that kind of courage. Last week we began the David and Goliath story. And this is a popular story for so many reasons. And last week we saw the first element of the story that made this story so popular. And we, we looked at David's zeal. David had just such a passion for the glory of God. He had so much zeal and jealousy for God's fame and God's glory. And, and that comes through in the text and that's why we love the text. But today we move on to the next element that David gives us that makes this text so compelling and it's David's courage. David is a hero. David showed courage in dire circumstances. So let's look at that courage and let's see how it affects us as Christians and God's people today. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 31, we're going to look at why David was so courageous when all else around him was so cowardly. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Beginning in verse 31. I would ask you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So last week, we see that David's question of who's going to deal with this Philistine, who's going, why are we letting him go unchallenged, was rhetorical in nature. He wasn't ask, actually asking a question. He was making a statement. He was essentially saying, you cowards, if you're not going to do something about this, then I will. And we know that because whatever he was saying, that word got to Saul, and Saul interpreted as, I guess we have someone who wants to stand up to Goliath. So David was sort of rhetorically volunteering himself. If you, if, if you guys aren't going to take care of this, then I will. So the, the people say, okay, someone tell Saul we got someone who wants to fight Goliath. We got some cocky little kid who wants to fight Goliath. So word gets to Saul and David goes to Saul. David says, I want to fight with him. And Saul knows David, right? He's been a servant. He says, I know, you're just a kid. You're not a soldier. You're a shepherd. You've got no formal training. You're just a child. And this man is not only way larger than you and older than you, but he's been fighting longer than you've been alive. You are not equipped. You are not prepared. This is an unwinnable fight for someone like you. And David says, on the contrary, 
I'm the most qualified person here for a fight like this. You see, everybody else in Israel has been trained in the art of war. And what does that mean? They've been trained to fight other men. None of the soldiers of Israel have been trained to fight giants. They've been fighting men their whole lives. They've not been fighting giants. This is a giant. This is my territory. Because that's what I've been fighting my whole life. Bears. Lions. By the way, as a quick side note, there are some people who will try to argue that 1 Samuel 17 is not historically accurate because I have a question for you. When's the last time you've ever gone on a hiking trip and as you saw a bear, you ran away from the bear and in the process you ran into a lion? I bet this probably never happened. Or when's the last time you were on a safari in Africa and after taking pictures of all the cool lions, you turned around to take a picture of that awesome grizzly bear? Uh, you would be surprised to find out that any amount of faithful historical research will tell you that in this day and age, lions and bears, it was overwhelmingly common for them to habitate together. It was, everyone knew that this region was full of both lions and bears. We have to be very careful to not think so uh, anachronistically where we see how things are today and assume it was like that in the past. I remember when I made that mistake as a kid, I was blown away. Like, my mind was blown when I discovered, when I first learned that horses are not native to what we call the United States of America. This land that we live on, uh, my whole life I've seen nothing but horses. Horses are everywhere. And they seem to fit just fine in this geographic environment. They seem to thrive here. And even before automation, they were even far more common. And the I knew the Native Americans rode horses, and so I assumed, like, horses are from here. That's not the case at all. Horses are not from this land. They were brought here by Europe. And now they're all over the place. You would be amazed at how many current animal geog geographical locations were created and changed and adapted by colonization. Rome itself literally, literally changed the face of the earth. Like by taking animals and bringing them to different places for different purposes and means, they, they actually changed the ecosystems. So don't let that fret. Don't, don't fret over the fact, well, I've never seen a lion and a bear operate in the same habitat. Yeah, today you'll never see that, but that used to be common. And so David, his point is, I'm actually more qualified than any of you. You ever seen a bear? Bears are scary. I used to live in Colorado. Admittedly, I've never seen a lion, not in the flesh. I've seen bears in the flesh. They're scary. Even a little black bear, which is relatively not very hostile and relatively small, is pretty scary. Like if, it were to, if a black bear were to walk in the room right now, most of us would actually be a little scared. And that's like the smallest, coziest of bears, unless you count koalas, I don't know. David's saying, I fought bears. Bears are a lot more like Goliath than men that you guys have fought. I'm the most qualified for this job. And by the way, he gives us a, a, a description of how he fought these animals. He would start with the slingshot. He would start by throwing and hitting them with stones. And if that didn't do the job, he would grab them by the beard. David used to kill these beasts with his bare hands. David's looking at Goliath and saying, he's not even the biggest thing I've killed this week. I'm the most qualified for this job. And by the way, this makes sense of something I passed over when we preached it. You don't have to look there, but in 1 Samuel 16, when Saul needed the musician to come and play for him, and one of the men in Saul's court knew David, and he knew David really well, apparently, because he knew David had great musical skill. And so he talks about, hey, I've got this guy. And you know it's one of the ways he describes David? He doesn't just describe him as a man of musical skill. 1 Samuel 16, he describes him as a man of war. Or your translation might say, a valiant warrior. How did this guy know David was a warrior? He was a shepherd. But this guy, who clearly knows David well enough, because he knows David's hobbies and talents and skills, has apparently been acquainted with the fact that David kills beasts with his bare hands. So he has no qualms telling Saul, this kid is not your average shepherd. This kid's a warrior. So again, I asked the same rhetorical question I asked last week. Who's the real underdog here? Who's the real underdog? 
Goliath, who has done nothing but fight men way smaller than him his entire life? Or David, who kills lions and bears for a living? Who's the real underdog here? David goes into this fight with great confidence and courage. I'm prepared for this. I'm ready for this. Let me in, coach. And it convinces Saul, right? He lets him go. <laughs> May the Lord be with you. Now, we don't know Saul's mindset. Like, was Saul actually convinced by the argumation? Like, was Saul, did the light bulbs go off? Did Saul go, you know what? Yeah, this kid can win. Or was it just a Hail Mary? Was it just like, I don't think this kid can win, but I got to do something. I'm losing the guys. I got to try something. Or is it just purely political? I mean, I don't, I don't know what Saul's thought process or motivations are. The text doesn't tell us. But whatever David says, Saul says, okay, go get him, kid. Good luck. Lord be with you. So David steps up in the shining moment of this text, this very brief little section we have here that we are all captivated by is the courage of this young man. To stand up to Goliath. I will fight him. I'll do it. And so I want to, at first, the first part of our sermon today, well, I guess that was the introduction, that was the first part, the second part of our sermon, I want us to analyze, where does David's courage come from? Like, if we want to be courageous, if we want to be like David in this, we need to analyze, where is David getting all this confidence? Where is he getting all of this courage? And I've given you, in alliteration, I've given you two points, two things I think the text is telling us that are the soil where David's courage and confidence grows from. And the first one is preparation. We've already discussed it at length, but let's just look at it again, verse 34 and 35. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David's confidence is coming from his preparation. David, again, he does not see himself as the underdog in this situation. David saying, I have a resume, I have a history, I have a skill set, I know what I'm doing, I know I can win this fight, I'm not scared of this guy. And I'm not scared of him because I know how to beat him. Because I have beat him multiple times over my life. I've beat huge, large creatures that are way stronger than me. David is a warrior and he is trained and prepared. Now, admittedly, it's an unorthodox training. He didn't train in the military. But again, he is relying on his preparation. I've been here before. I've done this. I know what I'm doing. I have the skill set. Put me in, coach. I fought bears, I fought lions, I can fight Goliath. He is relying upon his skill set, what he has been able to do, and what he knows he can do. David is relying on his preparation, his skills, his resume. In other words, I think this is important because, even in my own head, because this is such an amazing underdog story, and because, as we're going to see in our next point, God gets so much glory in what he's able to accomplish and deliver here. We want to glorify God, I think, sometimes by making it more of an underdog story than it actually is. I think sometimes in our heads and maybe even in like TV re, you know, reproductions of David and Goliath, we, we love the underdog story so much we want to widen the gap as much as we can to make God more glorious. So we portray David like he's this wimpy, weak little kid. Who's, who's, who knows nothing of warfare or violence, and he just kind of comes in with his hands in his pockets and kicks the dirt and says, oh, shucks, you know, I've, I don't know anything about fighting, but I trust in the Lord, so I'll fight him. We act like David is this reckless, immature, cocky little kid who goes around saying, listen, I don't know anything about this, but you know what? I believe in God, so I'll do it. That's reckless. That's not smart. But David is not being reckless here. David is being calculative. David is actually looking in the math and saying, you know what, I do stand a chance. You ever fought a bear with your bare hands? By the way, bears always fight with their bare hands. You ever fought a lion with a slingshot? I've not done it. I wouldn't want to do it. Again, David is not some wimpy little kid 
who's just blind, has just blind faith in God. You know what? I love God, so I know he will deliver me, even though I am totally over my head, and there's no good reason why I should be out there. Can you imagine how many of you, uh, I just thought of this analogy. This is not in my notes, but I think I, think I saw Emily and I thought of it. How many of you, you need a, an emergency heart surgery? And I say, you know what, guys? I have great faith in the Lord. Let me do it. Put me in. I'll do it. And you say, uh, no thanks. And I say, what, are you not a Christian? You don't, have, you don't trust in the Lord? You don't believe in the Lord? That's not what David was doing. David was saying, I can win this. Put me in. He was relying upon his preparation, but he was also simultaneously relying on something else, and that is providence. He was relying on his preparation, but he was also relying on the providence of God. Because look at what he says. At the end of verse 36, he says what we saw last week, again, that he has defied the armies of the living God. So again, he's reiterating to us, God is on my side, not on Goliath's side. And he goes on in verse 37. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So let me ask you this. What is David relying on? Is he relying on his own skill set in battles? Or is he relying on God's providence and God's ability to deliver and save him? What's the biblical answer here? Both. He begins by telling them, I can do this. I've done this before. I'm skilled. I know how to do this. And then he immediately transitions into, I've never done this. God has done it for me. I'm the one who killed the bear. I'm the one who killed the lion. That's verse 35. And then verse 36 and 37, God's the one who killed the bear. God's the one who killed the lion. So yes, he's relying on his skill set, his resume, his preparation, but he's simultaneously relying on the providence of God. God is on my team. God is on my side. He will deliver me. He will win this fight for me. God is the one who delivered me from those animals. God is the one who will do the same thing to Goliath. He will just be another carcass in my resume. Because God is the one who's done this. God is the one who's delivered me. So David here, his confidence, his courage is coming from both faith in his preparation and faith in his God. And apparently he doesn't see those things as in competition with one another. He doesn't see these things as competing with one another but that they actually fit together perfectly. What David is doing here is he is giving us a brief insight into one of the most important doctrines, most people would say of the Reformed faith, but I would say of the whole Bible. And this is the doctrine that we in the Reformed tradition call compatibilism. David is teaching us something here about compatibilism. What is the doctrine of compatibilism? Compatibilism is the argument that the Bible takes these things which we think are in conflict, but they're actually compatible with one another. So for example, you may have heard whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian say things like, if God's in control of everything, why do we pray? Why do you pray? Are, are, you, are you trying to change God's mind? I thought God can't change his mind. Doesn't he know everything? Doesn't he? Like, do you know better than God? No, so why do you pray? And when you pray, are you asking God to do something he's not already trying to do? God, please save my father. Please save my grandmother. Please save my son. Isn't God already trying to do that? What are you, what are you praying about it for? Like, why do we pray? Or maybe the even bigger question, the bigger contradiction that people like to bring up, how does God's sovereignty fit with human free will? Like, don't, don't these things not belong together? Either God has predestined all things, and therefore there's really no free will. Like, we're just kind of all robots. We're just all in the machine. Or we have free will, but if we have genuine, true free will, then we cannot truly say God is sovereign. He's providential over all things because he has to give us the choice to do something he doesn't want to happen. So either God has a plan and we have no free will, or God doesn't have a plan, but we do have free will. And that's typically how this debate is categorized. If God planned that I would believe in Jesus Christ, then can you really call my faith free? But if God didn't plan it, then that means I could not do it. And if his plan was for me to believe, but I don't do it, then can you really call that a plan? 
right? The plan of God, the sovereignty of God, and the freedom of men, they don't fit together. And so we have all these debates in the Christian faith. And the Reformed position has said whether I understand the metaphysics, whether I understand the philosophy, the scriptures seem to say that both of these things are compatible with one another. They fit together. So when you believed in Jesus Christ, was that your choice? Was that something you did? Yes. Did God plan that and accomplish that? Yes. They say, that sounds like a contradiction. Well, we're arguing the Bible fits these things together. Again, who is it that delivered David from the paw of the bear? Was it David's own free will choice? Was it David's skill to throw a rock? Did David actually do that? Yes. And he says he did that. But who does David give credit to for doing that? The Lord delivered me. The Lord saved me. So who saved David from the bear? His skills with a slingshot or the Lord's providence? Both. They're friends. They're not in conflict. If you're still not convinced, there, there are a handful of verses I like to go to, but let's go to one of the premier verses. Keep your marker here, but go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Beginning in verse 19, I, I need to fill you in on the context here. This is the end of the book of Genesis, and the end of Genesis focuses on Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph? He was the youngest of his brothers, and his father favored him, and he had the, the coat of many colors, and his brothers got really jealous, and they didn't like him, so they were going to kill him, but one of the brothers says, no, let's not kill him, and so they sell him into slavery. So then Joseph has this really terrible life, and then they lie to dad about it. Joseph's been killed by a wild animal, and Joseph is now a slave, and then he goes to Egypt, and he kind of rises up, and then he's falsely accused, and he goes back to prison, and he goes through all this terrible, but he eventually finds Pharaoh's good favor and he becomes second in command over all of Egypt. And he's been there for a long time. He's now like a full-fledged Egyptian and there's a famine back in his homeland. And so all of these nations are coming to Egypt asking for help for food because there's a famine everywhere. But Joseph, God gave Joseph a vision that there would be this famine so Egypt has been preparing. So all these nations are coming to Egypt asking for food, asking for help. And here come Joseph's brothers at the feet of Joseph, asking for help. And eventually he hides, his, first he hides his uh, true identity, but then he tells them his true identity, and then their father back home dies. And so the brothers are in, at this last place of Genesis. They're at this place where we sold our brother into slavery. We tried to kill him. Dad's dead. He's going to be mad. He's going to be sad. He's going to kill us. We need to beg for mercy. Joseph is going to take his rightful revenge on us. We deserve to die, and he's going to do it. And so they come. Let's say in verse, look at verse 17. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now here's the key. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The same event, Joseph being sold into slavery, it's the same event. Joseph's brothers did it. They're the ones who sold him into slavery, and they were evil for doing it, and they're held accountable for their actions. But who else was also involved in this process? God. Every translation you own will use a Hebrew word in the past tense. In other words, Genesis 50:20 is, is emphatically not saying, you did something evil, but God later on fixed it for good. It says God meant for this to happen. He intended for this to happen. Your translation might even say he planned it. God planned. He intended that Joseph would get sold into slavery. So it is God who used his brothers to sell him into slavery. But the text is very clear. The brothers are not off the hook. That was their choice. It was their evil intentions. And they should be held accountable for it. So who sold Joseph into slavery? His brothers or God? The answer is both. But God's intentions were good. The brothers' intentions were bad. So God gets no, we, we, right, we don't accuse God of committing sin. 
but we do accuse the brothers of sin, but the same action, two parties accomplished it. We see this, we won't look there, we've looked at it many times before, but you can write down Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. We see the same thing in the presentation of the cross. The cross of Christ is described in the Bible as being the accomplishment of the predestined plan of God. The cross of Christ is said in the book of Acts, it, was, it came about because of what your hand and your plan predestined to occur. The cross was predestined, but what does that mean? All of the individual decisions of the cross were predestined. So why did Jesus get crucified? Because God planned it? Or because the Jews and, 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 and Herod and the Gentiles were evil? Both. You say, I don't understand the philosophy of that. I don't understand the metaphysics of that. That's fine. We have a whole lifetime to discuss that. But I'm asking you here, can we at least just believe both parts and figure it out later? Can we just believe both of the parts and figure it out later? God planned this. But the people who did this are still accountable for their actions. Somewhere philosophically down the road, those, those roads will connect. But until then, can we, can we just believe both the parts? So let's take this back to David. I don't mean to be a spoiler. But I'm assuming you probably know David wins. We'll see that next week. David wins. Who is it that beat Goliath? Did David beat Goliath or did God beat Goliath? Did David use his skill that he has acquired? Did he make his choice? I'm going to throw it this hard and at this angle. Or did God like take him over like a robot? He's like, what is going on here? I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Whoa. And he throws a rock against his will. No, David's making the choices. David's doing the actions. It's David's will. Yet at the end of it, David will say, God did this. They're compatible. Both has happened. In other words, David is showing us here that his confidence comes not just from his preparation, but from what God specifically will do through his preparation. And this is why, by the way, I mean, this has many real-life consequences for us, this doctrine. It's not just a theological doctrine. So, for example, the Bible says that God already knows the day that you're going to die. He already knows that. So, should you wear a seatbelt? Wouldn't it be easy to get in your car and drive down the highway and say, I'm not going to buckle myself, I'm not going to buckle my child, I'm not going to buckle my children in. Because God already knows the day I'm going to die. If it's today, a seatbelt's not going to save me. If it's not today, a seatbelt's not going to kill me. So I don't need a seatbelt. If you're having a heart issue, should you go and have surgery? Or should you just say, you know what, I, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't trust what men can do. I trust what God can do. I believe God's going to save me, not men. When you're sick, should you take medicine? Like, why do we do these things? Because... We, even the, just the way we live our lives, you don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be an expert metaphysician. You just inherently know that God is in control, not just of the ends, but of the means. So you get in a car and God says, today is not the day of your death. I am not going to let him die. But I'm not going to let him die through his seatbelt. Right? So if you get a surgery, it is okay. It is biblically 100% okay after your surgery, shake your surgeon's hand and say, thank you for saving me. They did do that. God didn't take them over like a robot. That was their training, their education, their skill. And you say, thank you. Thank you for saving me. And then guess what you do? You go home and you get on your knees and you put your hands up in the air and you say, thank you, God, for saving me. Because he did it. If he wanted to make the surgeon slip the hand, he could. If you wanted to have a brain fart, he could. Both of these things come together. They both saved you. These things fit together. So if God doesn't want you to die tomorrow, you're not going to die tomorrow. But that's not an excuse not to wear your seatbelt. Both of these things come together. And by the way, that's where David's courage comes from. David is, David is not just recklessly saying, listen, I have blind faith that God will do whatever I want him to do, so I'm going to go fight because I know I will win because God's going to do whatever I want him to do. That's not David's perspective. He's not being reckless. He's being smart here. But let's not take God all the way out of the equation. He's not just saying, I don't need God. I know how to fight. Right? That's not his perspective. At the risk of getting political, one of my favorite examples of this fallacy was when the now resigned governor of New York, after COVID was really big and then they made a bunch of changes and the numbers went down, he had that famous interview that blew up online where he actually went on 
online and he had this interview and he told people, we brought the numbers down. Prayer didn't do that. God didn't do that. We brought the numbers down. And all the Christians everywhere rightfully so freaked out because he had the audacity to say, New York saved these people, not God. And he's wrong about that. God did that. All those people whose lives were saved, they owe their thanks to God. But does it mean that the policies and the things that they did weren't used by God? No, of course not. So did New York, did the policies do it or did God do it? What's the answer? Both. Both. That's where courage comes from. I am prepared and I trust in the Lord. We don't want to sacrifice either side of that. So let me give you sort of the David and Goliath story, but, but a, uh, our text today, but a kind of a Christian application of it. It sounds something like this. The hope for the Christian life is that God will work in and through his church to conquer her enemies. God is not just going to work around us miraculously. He's not just going to shove us out of the way and say, I'll take care of this. You just go sit on the sideline. He works in us and through us. God saved Israel from Goliath through David. It's through David's actions, through David's skill, through David's preparation that God worked. He works in the church, through the church, with the church, not around her. He uses us. So if you want hope for the Christian life, there's your hope. Will the Lord deliver his church? Will he protect his church? Yes, and he's going to use you to do that. He's going to use us collectively, corporately to do that. So you say, okay, well, what does that look like? Okay, I get that in broad principle. But what, what does that look like? Well, let's break that down. So our first two points, David was relying on both preparation and providence. Now for application, what does that look like for me when I'm not fighting Goliath? Well, I've got another alliteration for you. Assurance and action. The hope of the Christian life comes from assurance and it comes from action. Let's start with assurance. You will have no hope for yourself, for your family, or for the future if you are not 100% convinced that God can do what God has promised to do. Has God promised to save you in Christ? Has he promised to deliver his church? You need to believe. You need to really believe that he can do that. David really believed the Lord can and will deliver me. I, tr I trust in the Lord right now. He's been faithful to me all my life as I've been fighting bears and fighting lions. He's always come through for me. I really, truly believe that the Lord will deliver me. Right? This is not just a catechism question for David. This is not just the right answer. He really believes that God can save him. And so let me just ask you this question. If I were to come up to you and say, do you really believe God can save you? I know you'd say yes to that. That's the right question. That's the right answer. But I'm asking you to do some self -reserve. Do you really believe that if you are in Christ, God will save you from your sins? Because you see, the, 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 the idea that God can save us is crucial to our understanding of the confidence and courage that we need as a Christian people. And what we need to also understand is that understanding who our enemies are is far more important than Goliath. And here's what I mean by that. When we start applying the text, this is where so many people get off base and they start sort of uh, taking this out of context. And so in other words, how do they apply it? They, they, they will talk about courage in your circumstances, but what is Goliath in most sermons? Uh, he's your cancer. Or he's that job promotion you want. Right? Or he's your depression or your low self-esteem. And so usually when this text is preached, the application is God can help you overcome depression. God can help you overcome your low self-esteem. God can help you get that promotion you've been praying for. God can help you with your cancer. Now, to some degree, that, that's kind of true. Like, if you're depressed, it is the power of God that can get you over that. But we really rob God of his glory if we cheapen 1 Samuel 17 to that kind of an application. Because, you see, we have enemies in our life that we are desperately clinging by faith that God will conquer that are so much worse than cancer or earning $35,000 a year rather than $80,000 a year. 
We have enemies so much worse than depression. Enemies so much worse than Goliath or Pharaoh. You have enemies in your life right now that are significantly more scary than bears, lions, and giants. And what are they? Well, number one, sin. Sin. Sin is the worst thing in the world. It is worse than Goliath. And you have sin, you have personal sin in your own life. And guess what? Guess what the scriptures have promised, God has promised to do? To deliver us from sin. To save us from sin. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's your Goliath. There's your Goliath. Your own sin. And guess what the scriptures have promised God in Christ will deliver you from? He will save you from your sins. You need to believe that. As a matter of fact, do you want to know why the Lord Jesus Christ was named Jesus? Who remembers the Christian story? Why did the angel command them to name him Jesus? What does Jesus mean? God will save his people. But the Jewish understanding of salvation was primarily physical. The vast majority of the time in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about God saving his people, it's from physical enemies. So Matthew goes on to clarify, for he will save his people from their sin. Babylon and Assyria and Rome and Goliath and the Philistines, these are all types and shadows of a greater enemy in that sin. And the greater David has come to deliver us from sin. You will be saved through Jesus Christ. But we have more enemies than even just sin. We have another enemy, death. Isn't it, wouldn't it be terrible? You could be forgiven of your sins, but then you die and you cease to exist. What kind of a victory is that? The consequences of sin is death. You have an enemy greater than Goliath, and that's death. Death has conquered every man. There's no escaping it. You can escape Goliath. You can't escape death. Death is the greatest of enemies. And guess what the scriptures have promised to deliver us from? 1 Corinthians, turn your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I know you know these. I know these are basic Christian truths, but I want us to see these in the word, and I want us to be reminded of these great truths. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. After talking about how hypothetically terrible life would be if Christ didn't raise from the dead, Paul goes on to say this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You want a Goliath? It ain't cancer, it's death. It's ceasing to exist for all eternity, and Christ has conquered death. You're going to be resurrected in Christ, and you're going to live forever. Do you believe that? And if you truly believe that, how would that affect your life today? 
Christ has conquered our sin. Christ has conquered our death. And it was alluded to here. Let's look at one more enemy far greater than Goliath. Satan himself. Goliath is but a pawn. He's but a tiny little tool in the hands of Satan. You see, it's not blasphemous to say that Satan is very powerful. As a matter of fact, in the book of Jude, it actually says it's blasphemy to not call Satan powerful. You believe that? You can blaspheme the demonic realm. Satan is very powerful. He's far more powerful than you. And he's far wiser than you. And he's far more powerful than Goliath and cancer and depression. He is a very wicked, powerful enemy. And Peter says he roams around like a lion to devour us. So I have a question for you. Do you have a David who can save you from that kind of an enemy? Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. So there's saving from sin. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what second victory did that accomplish? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And your Bible probably has a little note, footnote, that'll bring you down to the bottom that will explain that phrase in the Greek, Rulers and authorities is an expression to describe the demonic realm. When Christ saved us from our sins, he shamed and triumphed over Satan and his demons, his minions. Christ has conquered Satan. And there's an even greater conquering coming. Because the book of Revelation tells us that Satan's judgment is not yet over. He's already been conquered. He's already been triumphed over. He's already been put to shame. And Revelation 22 ends with Satan and his demons being taken from Hades and poured into hell where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How's that for a David and Goliath story? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. If you want to have a courageous Christian life, you need to have assurance of three things. That Christ Jesus can save you from your sin. That he can save you from death. That he can save you from Satan. And the scriptures have promised he will deliver us. Or to use the words that David used, let not the hearts of God's people be troubled by these. Don't be afraid of sin. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of Satan. Because the greater David has promised us deliverance. We need to have that assurance. We need to have that confidence. The Lord will deliver his people. But not only do we need that assurance, we also need our last point, action. Again, what you'll see next week is David did not go to the battle like this. Listen, God has promised to deliver us. God has promised to save us. So let's just sit back and wait. Let's just do nothing. Because God is the one who gives the victory. Right? Psalms chapter 20 says, Foolish is the man who puts his trust in chariots and horses, for the Lord is the one who will deliver. So we don't need to do any fighting. Just go home and God will defeat our enemies. That's not compatibilism. David knew God is going to defeat Goliath, but he's going to defeat him through me. God is going to protect his church. He is going to protect and deliver us. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a call to action. The sovereignty of God is not our excuse to do nothing. And so there are a few things that we in the Christian life, if we want true courage and true confidence, there are things we need to do. The first one is perseverance. Matthew 23, 14, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You don't get to walk away from Christ. You don't get to say, I believe in you. Thanks for punching my ticket. See you later. 
You don't get to say, listen, God will save his elect, and so I don't have to believe in Jesus. If I'm elect, he'll save me. If I'm not elect, he won't save me. So whether I believe in Jesus, it's irrelevant, right? Because God saves his elect, so I, you know. He saves his elect through what they do. You need to believe in Jesus, and you need to keep that belief in Jesus. That's the action. That's the call. That's what you need to do to enjoy the deliverance of God. We have to believe. We have to persevere. The next thing that we also have to do, good works. If we want the Christian church to triumph, if we want to see all enemies destroyed, we need to be holy people. Romans chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, Paul says this to the Jews, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What's he saying there? He's saying the reason the Gentiles are not putting their faith in Christ is because you guys are an embarrassment to Christ. Because you are hypocrites, because you proclaim the law, but you don't actually follow the law, and that is preventing people from coming to know the Lord. So I want to remind us, remember compatibilism, God will save his elect, but it's simultaneously true that if we as Christians live hypocritical, ungodly lives, people will not come to Christ. They will want no part of our Jesus. So what's one of the tools that God in his providence uses to slay Goliaths like sin and death? He uses the good works of his church. Our good works are the stones we sling at the enemy. David didn't say, hey, listen, God's going to deliver us, so let's just go home. Yeah, God's going to save his elect, but that doesn't mean we don't have something to do in this plan. If we live hypocritical lifestyles, people won't get saved. We need to be faithful. May the name of the Lord never be blasphemed because of us. We need to persevere. We need to do good works. Another thing, this is kind of the key one that comes up in these debates. We need to evangelize. Romans 10, right after the verses that we read, it goes on to say this. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right? Again, people love to ask this question. If you deny compatibilism, then you have to ask the question, does God save his elect? If so, why do we evangelize? God's going to save them no matter what we do, right? So if we need to evangelize, then sure, we'll evangelize. But what does that mean? God can't guarantee the salvation of the elect. But what we're saying is these things come together. God is going to perfectly and infallibly save all of his elect, but he's going to do that through our evangelism. So what am I saying to you? If we don't preach the gospel of Christ, if people don't hear about Christ, they won't know who to believe on. And if they don't know who to believe on, they won't believe on him. And if they don't believe on him, they're not saved. The church has a call to preach the gospel of Christ, to be an instrument in God's hand, to conquer God's enemies. We are the stones God is slinging at Goliath. We need to believe. We need to persevere. We need to do good works. We need to evangelize. The last thing I'll say, well, actually a couple things. I'll make them very brief. Pray. Isn't it interesting? Every single week we come in here and we recite the Lord's Prayer. And I had a, an interesting conversation with Bill Hartman the other day. I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but he, he always thought it was kind of funny. Why do we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Like, isn't God already doing that? Is God like saying, is God up in heaven saying, you know, I don't really want my kingdom to come and I'd rather them just have their way. And then we say, no, God, please make your kingdom come. And he goes, okay, fine. Are we changing God's mind? That's a problem. But what's the other end of the spectrum? God's already doing it and we're praying, God, please do it. He's up there, yeah, dummy, it's, I'm already doing it. What are you praying about? But there's this compatibilism here. God has promised for the church to triumph. He has promised his kingdom will come. He has promised Christ will subdue all enemies under his feet. This is a guarantee. This is a promise. This is an inevitable thing. But we still have a part to play to be used by that. So let me just say it this way. If we don't pray for the kingdom to come, it might not come. It will come. But God uses our prayers to do that. So it's still true to say, if you don't pray, it's not coming. We need to pray. Jesus himself tells us in the Gospels, some of you do not have. Why? Because you never asked. Because you didn't ask. Is the sovereignty and providence of God an excuse to say, listen, he's going to do whatever he wants. I don't need to pray about it. No. 
And then I asked the other question, do you have to have it figured out? Do you have to understand how prayer and sovereignty fit together? No, you don't even have to figure it out. You just have to believe both and do both. God's kingdom will come, and I'm going to pray that it comes. I'm going to ask him to bring it. Even though I know he will, I'm going to ask him to do it. And we'll figure the rest out in heaven, maybe. We need to pray, not just for the kingdom to come. All the good things. You want to see your country changed? Pray. You want to see your family changed? Pray. God has not called you to sit on the sidelines and just let him miraculously conquer Goliath. He conquers Goliath through us. That's the last thing I'll say, parenting. You want to see the enemies of God conquered? We need good godly parents. Proverbs 22 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We are raising up a generation of Christians that God can use like David to conquer enemies. What do we not have the freedom to say? Listen, whether my child is a rebel or not, whether my child is a believer or not, I mean, that's up to the sovereignty of God. So I guess it doesn't matter how I raise him. It doesn't matter if I'm a tough disciplinarian at home or I just let them run the household. Because even if I'm a tough disciplinarian, God's just going to do whatever he wants. So I don't need to do anything. I don't need to be a good parent. That's not the promise of the scriptures. How you parent matters. But yes, God has predestined all things. You say, I don't understand that. Well, Genesis 50, 20, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, it's there. It's there. So we need to have assurance, confidence like David that God is going to deliver us, but we need to simultaneously know that doesn't mean we do nothing. That doesn't mean we have no role to play in all of this. And so let me quote the same quote, much, much shorter, that I did last week. You're going to say, oh, that's lazy, but I quoted Spurgeon last week, and as I was reading through, I thought, you know, this is so good, and it pertains so much to the sermon, but it also pertains to next week. So let me close with this great quote from Spurgeon in his sermon on the jealousy of God. Spurgeon says this, I am not afraid for the church of God. I tremble not for the cause of God. Our jealous husband will never let his church be in danger. And if any smite her, he will give them double for every blow. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, but she shall prevail against the gates of hell. Her jealous husband will roll away her shame. Her reproach shall be forgotten. Her glory shall be fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. God is going to deliver the church. He's going to save the church. We should have great hope and confidence for today and tomorrow and for the future of our world because of these promises. But we take that hope, we take that confidence, and we step into battle. We don't step out of battle. We step into battle. May God use Redeemer. May he use all the faithful churches in Roswell, all the faithful churches in the United States of America, all the faithful churches around the world. May he use us to bring his kingdom.